Amen? All right. Genesis 6, uh, chapter, chapter 6, verses 5 to 8. Today marks the beginning of this year's Advent season. It's already December. Can you guys believe it? It feels like we, we just got used to saying 2023, right? Like when you write 2023, 2024 is coming, right? Um, and Christmas is actually only four weeks away. The Latin word adventus, which means to arrive or to come, it really points to this idea of celebrating Jesus' arrival, the baby in a manger, born in a manger. And we celebrate the baby born in a manger. Uh, we do that really well. But throughout the church history, Advent wasn't simply about celebrating the initial coming of Jesus, but just like the song we sang, the last song we sang, it's also looking forward to Christ returning, Him coming back. So in this Advent season, it's both celebrating Jesus' first arrival, but also looking forward to Jesus' second arrival. We want Jesus to come back, right? Like three of you guys? <laughs> not before I get married, not before I get my promotion. I, I'm just going to make, I'm going to make partner soon. Maybe not. No, but really the desire is for us to, as we celebrate this season, not only celebrate the baby born in the manger, but to really celebrate Jesus' second arrival. So every, I mean, this candle is really hurting right now. I don't, you're not going to help me out with candles, Sinead's candles. But uh, we lit this candle before the service, and this is the hope candle. And every week, through, as you come into the service, you'll see different candles being lit. And, and that just signals hope, peace, joy, and love. And we get to light the, the final candle, Christmas Eve, to celebrate again, once again, Jesus' arrival. Genesis. So why are we in the book of Genesis as we celebrate the Advent season? That's an interesting question. You see, Advent, as much as it's a wonderful event, and it's a celebration of the birth of Jesus, from, from gener generation to revelation, Jesus' arrival we find in these wonderful Christmas stories is the pinnacle of God's story, not the beginning. We love climaxes of every wonderful movie, like Christmas movies. Home Alone 1, every, anybody? Home Alone 2 is really good too, but Home Alone 1, anybody? Home Alone 1, the climax takes place when eight-year-old Kevin defends his home from the burglars, Harry and Marv. Remember these guys? Kevin sets up a series of elaborate traps leading to a chaotic humor showdown, right? And these guys, at this movie, 33 years old. Can you believe that? Yeah, we're aging, 33 years old. And the climax concludes with the arrival of, of Kevin's mother, who unites with Kevin on Christmas Day. What about Elf? Lo Emma, my, my first daughter, she just saw Elf, and she loved it. She's like, this greatest movie, Elf, 20 years old. She's 20 years old. In the climax of Buddy the Elf, Elf helps Santa Claus's sleigh take flight by inspiring belief and Christmas spirit in the people of New York City, right? Imagine New York City, rough, like it's like people in Seoul, but, but maybe harder, right? And, and, and this, this movie, um, Will Ferrell plays this elf who, who is innocence and his joy and he's spreading this holiday cheer and he's able to uplift people's spirit and Santa Claus is able to deliver gifts. And many other Christmas movies and its climaxes, we love them. But in order to appreciate those moments, 
we need to rewind the tapes. In the same way, for our story of Jesus' arrival, next four weeks, I want to rewind their story. And this series is about rewinding the story from Genesis to Revelation to help us see the real significance of why a baby was born in a manger and why that was such a big deal. So Genesis 6, 5 to 8, let me read for us. <coughs> this, is the, this is the word of God. The Lord saw that the wickedness of men was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made men on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So that the Lord said, I will blot out men whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Strange passage. Merry Christmas, everybody. Three things about the passage. The grief, the heart, and the promise. The grief, the heart, and the promise. First, grief. Just as read, it said, the Lord saw the wickedness of men, and it was so great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of the man's heart was so evil, that Lord was sorry that he had made man on earth, and it, what? It grieved him to his heart. You see that? It's not simply God was annoyed. It's not simply that God was upset. It's not simply that God was frustrated. But the word is asap in, in Hebrew. Asap, like asa in Korean, but asap. Which is best translated as grief in the English language. Grief. I mean, think about this statement that God himself, creator God, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present God, he grieved. What a shocking statement. That all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing God, he would grieve. Francis Weller, a, a secular author, wrote a wonderful book on grief and how we, in, in a modern culture, uh, we, we process grief and how it is actually really, really hard for us to process grief because of the culture and the setting that we're in. One of the wonderful books, the book called The Wild Edge of Sorrow, and secular author, he says in his book, and in his book he, he explores the transformative power of grief and the ways that as individuals and societies navigate loss. Again, a wonderful book on grief. He says this in the book, and I quote, Grief and love are sisters woven together from the beginning. Their kinship reminds us that there is no love that does not contain loss and no loss that is not a reminder of the love we carry for what we once held close. Grief and love are sisters. What Weller is saying, I mean, he's saying a lot there. What he's saying is affection and sorrows, the emotions, intense emotions that we, we feel, are always interconnected. Connected. I mean, some of us are single in this room. Many of us are married. We don't grieve a bad blind date, right? When was the last time you grieved a, I mean, as annoying and frustrated that experience may have been, we don't grieve a bad blind date. What we grieve 
is a relationship with somebody who we once loved. Five years, ten years, and you really loved that person and things didn't work out, so we grieve. We grieve a loss of an unborn child. Some of us have experienced that. The end of a cherished friendship. A messy divorce. The departure of someone who we loved. The shattered dreams of unrealized potential. Grief is, simp is not simply frustration, annoyance, but there is this affection that is so tied, interconnected. Grief and love are sisters. So in our scripture in Genesis 6 verse 5 tells us that God grieved, that word grief, in fact, is a deeply relational word. In, in the Hebrew culture, that word the author chooses to use to describe God's grief, grief is a deeply relational word. It's in only in the relational context that word is. There's, in fact, two different Hebrew words for grieving. This one is used when it's spoken in a relational uh, term. So what was broken? What grieved God's heart? When we turn back a few pages from Genesis 6 to Genesis 3, well, even, even earlier, Genesis 1, we encountered the beautiful account of creation where God in his spoken word brought forth the wonders of the world. Through his words, darkness gave away to light and land emerged from the waters and the landscape was adorned with flowers, trees, birds, and animals. And they're all a testament to God's creative power. And in the accumulation of his magnificent work, God crafted humanity in his own image. That's what the scripture tells us. In his own image with profound significance, reflecting the creator's intention for a special relationship with humanity. He created everything else. And then he created men and women in his own image. And he said, we're going to have a special relationship. And it's not merely existence. But God gives this invitation to actively engage in ongoing care and cultivation of the rest of creation. As his main stewards, we are to cultivate the garden and, and, and really love the creation, rule and oversee. And, and it's very clear in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 that God adorned us. That he loved us and said, you have a special place in creation. Yet we know in Genesis 3, as soon as God created us and God gave us this beautiful cultural mandate. In Genesis 3 to 6, we see a sobering narrative unfold. Humanity in its choices and actions wanders far from God's original intent. Right? God's dream is shattered. The path once marked by harmony and communion now bears the weight of human decisions that have distanced Humanity from God's original design. And we get to Genesis 6. By Genesis 6, it's just bloodbath. Brothers murdering one another. Right? Families just backstabbing. By Genesis 6, all the injustice and wickedness that the author describes for us, what the story is telling us, these injustices, acts of violence, and hatred, envy, and jealousy 
They're all mere symptoms of humanity's decision to break away from God. So really, the grief of God that is described here in Genesis 6 goes far beyond God's response to human evil. It's not simply, oh, because you are envious, because you are greedy, or because you took from other people that God's heart grieved. God grieves the severed relationship between himself and humanity. That's really where God's heart grieves. So when verse 5 tells us, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, the writer of Genesis isn't simply speaking about all the ways we have failed to love one another, even though that's there, even though that's true. He's not simply pointing out injustice, violence, lust, greed, but really the root problem. What's the problem? Humanity, choice, to live outside of God's grace and mercy. To say, God, I'm good. God, we're good. We're going to choose our own way. We're going to choose our own path. You fast forward the story to New Testament, Matthew 22. Jesus shows up to the scene. Says this teacher of the law asks Jesus a very good question. Probably one of the best questions in all of New Testament and, and asks Jesus to sum up the law. Says, Jesus, all these laws, 600 some laws that we have now, all these laws in the Old Testament, can you sum up? What's the most important law? And Jesus looks at this teacher and says, great question. Doesn't batter eye. And he says, what he doesn't do, before he tells him what it is, he doesn't delve into a list of all the don'ts. He doesn't, does, he doesn't say, don't be proud, don't be greedy, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't gossip. He could have done that because there's a lot of brokenness that he's seen in that when he arrived. But he says, what? He simply says, not don't do this and don't do that. It's simply, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the most important commandment. Is saying what Jesus is saying only when you and I order our lives under the profound love of God, pride, greed, deceit, lust, whatever sin that we're struggling with, all other sins that have gripped our lives begin to lose its grip. It's not a matter of avoiding certain toxic behaviors, it's about creating a space where these harmful tendencies simply cannot thrive. It's about reconstruction of the very core of who we are. Not just what's on the outside, but really transformation from inside out. Jesus was all about transformation from inside out. This means, friends, you and I cannot be in a thriving relationship with God who is showing himself to be utterly generous and while at the same time failing to extend generosity of your time and your resources. This means you cannot be in a thriving relationship with God who is wholeheartedly committed to you again and again. At the same time live a life marked by division and fickleness. This means you cannot be in a thriving relationship with God of mercy and grace while allowing bitterness and anger to govern you each day. 
Proverbs 26 has a very intense imagery. Speaks about a dog returning to its vomit. In Proverbs 26, it says, As a dog returns to its vomit, so fools repeat their folly. Saying, Foolish people are like dogs that return to its vomit. The same question is, why do you and I continue to return to the things that are actually really harmful for us? It's not simply that we make bad choices. It's not simply that we have this short memory that we don't remember what happens. It's that we have a heart that is failing. It's the issue of the heart. The author of Genesis in chapter 6 verse 5 when he says every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. The problem, the author says, is not simply our behavior, but it's our heart. Every lie, every cursing, every gossip, every moment of self-centeredness, right? This week, I was sick all week. I was so selfish. I was so annoying to like Lois and my girls. Because I was like, ah, I'm so sick. You know, when you get sick, you just want to become a giant baby, just me. I was so annoying, right? Every moment of self-centeredness are a direct reflection of what's happening inside of us. This is very countercultural because our culture tells us what? Our culture often tells us we're all good people. There are no bad people. We're all good people. And the answer to biggest life's questions lies inside of us. Only if we're only if we had enough courage to look within, we can actually find path that we're meant to live. Because we are inherently good. That's what Every Pixar movie, every Disney movie, it's no longer true love. It's about looking within, searching within, following your heart. As long as we follow our heart, we will not be lost. And we love that message. And that's a wonderful sounding message. But when we look at scripture, that's actually not true. Whenever I lose my composure with my kids, and I, uh, honestly, parenting is kicking my butt. Whenever I lose my composure with my kids, raising my voice, making threats, trying to bargain, I'll give you 20 minutes of screen time, just, just, you know, leave me alone. In those moments of, like me, yelling and screaming and trying to, like, intimidate my, like, five-year-old daughter, and she doesn't get intimidated, right, it's, like, hopeless, it's tempting to shift the blame, right? Because I feel shame. After all that happens, I'm like, oh my gosh. I can't even control myself around my own kids. In the moments, I want to convince myself that it's not me, it's them. Right? God gave me really terrible kids. That's why, Lord, you should have given me good kids. When disagreements arise with others, Family, wife, parking guy. He's always parking guy for me. You know, at that moment, right, we, we fight, we argue, we try to get our way. At that very moment, we find ourselves saying, if only so-and-so were more understanding. If my boss was less toxic. 
if my cork was less selfish, less greedy, we wouldn't be arguing. It's not me. It's what? It's them. It's not me. It's them. See, the temptation, the big temptation the enemy wants, the big temptation pie the enemy wants us to feast on is to believe that our lying, our cheating, our gossiping, our lusting, our envying is largely situational and occasional. In a perfect situation, I wouldn't do that. Yet the scripture very clearly, undeniably tells us that every sin, every lie, every curse, every gossip, every ending, every moment of self-centeredness are direct reflection of our hearts. Verse 5, the Hebrew word for the heart is love. Everyone say love. Love is the control center of everything we ever say or do. In Hebrew culture, when they say heart, it's this word love, and it's, it's not simply the organ heart, but it's the control center of every decision that we make. And the author says that's the problem. We have flawed control center, which means when we, what we need is not simply change of ideas or environment or behaviors or even habits. We can accomplish many of those things on our own, creating new habits. But what we cannot do is change our own hearts. That's wonderful sermon, Pastor Henry. We're really excited about Christmas now. No, but I had the good news. Verse 8. God at that moment makes a decisive decision. This is the good part, the promise. This grieving pain and sorrow of God sets stage for what follows. He looks at this man Noah. Out of all the wickedness in the world, he sees this man Noah and says, I'm going to rescue humanity through this man Noah. And verse 8 says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You see, God could have wiped out humanity and said, okay, wrong species. Let me create something else. This did not go well. He could have shut the whole thing down and said, never again will I create human beings. But that was never the plan. He chose Noah to continue the story. Through Noah's unwavering faithfulness, God establishes a covenant promising, I'm going to bless you. And the blessings will reach not only your people, not only your generation, but all peoples of the world. And from Noah to Abraham to David to this baby born in a manger in the city of Bethlehem. And when you, met, when you look at the genealogy of Jesus, they're all messed up people. Messed up people with massive drama in their life. Noah, even though he was very faithful, towards the end of his life, he's not faithful. He's got issues. David, this amazing king, at the end of his life, is running for his life because what? His son wants to kill him because he's causes drama and sinned against God by taking another man's woman. All these people as a mere signpost to the ultimate Savior, Jesus Christ. Right? Noah is a mere signpost to ultimate Savior, Jesus. Noah is there to point us to Jesus who can actually save us. Jesus Christ goes beyond building an ark. 
In fact, he threw himself into the flood of God's wrath and judgment. Fully immersing himself in the human experience. He came to us flesh and blood. We talked about this two weeks ago. And unlike Noah, who only rescued a remnant, his family, Jesus offers salvation to all who believe in him. Jesus, the greater Noah, undergoes a sacrificial exchange at the cross. There's a profound transaction. Cross is about transaction. It's not simply our king dying on the cross. There was a transaction, a swap of our flawed hearts, our, our control center that's totally broken. For a control center that is without any sin. The one without sin became sin for us and he gave us his heart. To taking our flawed hearts onto himself. You know, every Christmas season, as you go to the cafes and you watch these movies, sometimes the joy that is portrayed in these movies and these carols may not resonate the same for everyone. For some of us, or many of us, there is a, often a gap between how we want to feel in this season Versus how we actually feel. And this gap can be particularly challenging, especially when we are in the middle of an argument with someone we love. We are processing a broken relationship, whether it be with friends, significant others, our own parents. Some of us are grieving, still grieving, or haven't grieved. Some of us carry the burden of anxiety, depression, disappointments as we come to another end of another year. We have disappointments, fears of what's next. I've just turned 40, and 40 feels different. I'm not quite in the midlife crisis mode yet, but it does feel different. Where I'm like, oh man, sometimes I'm like, is this it, Lord? And I, I just see limit of our humanity. And you're like, Pastor, I'm wait till you turn 50. That's, that's nothing. Yet in the midst of our imperfections, I want to encourage us to remember in this season of Advent that we are not finished products. Turn to somebody and say, you're not finished products. Nicely, nicely, all right, spouses, nicely, to get you in trouble. Well, selfishness, anger, greed, and lust may be our still struggles. The essence of Christmas, Advent season, lies in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the real message of Christmas is not jingle bells. It's not all I want is you. It's not any of those things. It's that though our old habits of living selfishly still remains and life is not without pain and suffering. In fact, it's filled with pain and suffering. Remember what's happening around the world at this moment. And all the crazy things that's happening in our city, in the world. Yet, we can rest assured because all of our sin, the sin that we see in, in all, of the, all of the world, the shame and pain, all of it are radically being eradicated 
but it's transformative of grace of Jesus. And we look forward to him returning and saying, it is finished. Let's go home. And that's really the hope and the encouragement that we can walk away with as we see the wonderful promise in Genesis chapter 6. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love. Your heart grieved because, Lord, you loved us. You wept because we were precious to you. And in order to come and rescue us, you have put on humanity, Jesus. You have come to this earth as a baby, born in a manger, humble, unassuming. And you face persecution. You face challenges. You face doubters. You were tempted in every way. Yet you saw joy that was set before you. And even the cross, death on the cross, did not deter you. So Lord, in our brokenness, in our fears, in our anxiety, in our worries, in our challenges, we want to worship you. We want to hope again in you, Lord. We want to trust that you are eradicating all this brokenness, all this sin, all this injustice around the world. And we look forward to reuniting with you. Lord, we just pray a special prayer over anyone that's feeling really discouraged in this season. Anyone that's really dealing with fear and anxiety, dealing with this gap of what I could have been and what I am not and what I should be. Would you meet us? Would you touch us? Would you remind us that you have given us new heart and we can hope in you. We thank you. We thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.